Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to the podcast. You can also watch the podcast on the Other People YouTube channel. Subscribe there as well. It's free. Today on the program, my guest is J. Ryan Straddle, author of the novel Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. The whole conceit of the story was comical, the whole spine. But as I got into it, I discovered, you know what? The last thing I want to read is a stock comic elderly Midwestern female character. That's not what the world needs right now. I know too many of these women, I can't disrespect them like this. If I'm going to portray a woman of a certain age in the Midwest, I want to get to know her and I want the reader to get to know her. And so I decided to tell her backstory. And as I did that, I discovered, okay, there's a lot more here. All right, that was J. Ryan Straddle, best-selling author of the new novel, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, available from Pamela Dorman Books. It publishes on Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. This is J. Ryan's third time on The Other People Show. We've known each other for many years now, and it was great to see him and have the chance to catch up and to get to celebrate with him as he publishes this new book. Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club is set in the Upper Midwest, much like Straddle's previous novels, Kitchens of the Great Midwest and The Lager Queen of Minnesota. Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club portrays a world of an almost bygone seeming era, a world of supper clubs, of relish trays, of brandy old fashions. This is a novel about family, And in particular, it's about restaurant families. It's about love and loss and marriage and tradition. It's about the long arc of human lives and human families. It's about how people find identity and lose identity. 
through the work that they do, how they find community in the workplace and in the places that they live, how they persevere in the face of terrible tragedy, how they deal with disappointment and conflict and failure and the expectations placed upon them by parents and other family members and friends. It's about the stuff of life. And it is a totally absorbing and moving multi-generational family epic by J. Ryan Straddle. My conversation with him is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Melville House, publisher of Flux, the debut novel by Jinu Chong. Flux is a mind-bending and stylish neo-noir about a young man whose reality unravels when he begins to suspect that the tech startup he works for has inadvertently discovered time travel and is using it to cover up a string of violent crimes. I just talked with Jinu Chong on this program last week. His episode is live. Check it out. Best-selling author Ling Ma calls Flux, quote, brazen, exhilarating, fun, and surprising. That's Flux, the debut novel by Jinu Chong, on sale now from Melville House, available wherever books are sold. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of episodes is available to listeners free of charge. There is no paywall. There are more than 800 episodes and counting. It is all available. There's nothing in your way. Nobody likes paywalls. I am counting on regular listeners, people who love this show, people who feel like they get something from it, learn something from it, people who love book culture and wish to see it continue. I'm counting on you, if that describes you, to support this show. And I've tried to make that a no-brainer. You can support the Other People podcast for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. It's a sliding scale. You choose $1 a month, 3 5 10 20 whatever you can afford. As you move up the scale, you can get merchandise, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a book club subscription, a coffee mug, and so on and so forth over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you would like to get another People t-shirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. If you would like to receive my once-a-week free email newsletter, you can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. If you have a moment and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast, wherever you listen to this podcast, it helps new listeners find this podcast. Follow the show on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. If you have feedback for me, the email address for the show is letters at OtherPPL.com. Last but not least, I have a new novel out, or a relatively new novel out. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It'll be one year old on May 10th. Can you believe it? It's a work of autofiction. It's available right now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I'll read it to you. Investigate my inner landscape by reading my novel. Be brief and tell them everything. So, my guest, once again, is J. Ryan Straddle, best selling author of the new novel entitled Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. It is available now from Pamela Dorman Books, or technically it publishes on Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. 
J. Ryan Straddle is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, and the national bestseller, The Lager Queen of Minnesota. His writing has appeared all over the place in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Guardian, Granta. Is it Granta? It's Granta. No, it's Granta. <laughs> I was trying to sound fancy there with my mid-Atlantic accent. He was published in Granta, if you can believe it. Uh, the Rumpus. You've seen his work in The Rumpus. You've seen his work in the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm so happy for him and all the success that he has been having, and I am very pleased to catch him as he celebrates the publication of this wonderful new novel. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is J. Ryan Straddle, and his new book, One More Time, is called Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. My friends and I did the same thing at Perkins. Yeah, Perkins. Yeah, Minnesota. What was the other one? Was um, not Betty Crocker, but uh, what's the red one? It was red. Ooh, damn! What's it called? Jim. Well, there was a Happy Chef. Yeah. That was more northern Midwest. That was like the Waffle House of the North. Was Happy Chef. Happy Chef. Uh, then uh, Embers was a Minnesota chain. Okay. In the same vein, Howard Johnson. Oh sure. Kind of preceded all of that. Yeah. I think there's only one of those left in the country. One Howard Johnsons. I think. In where? If that. In Minneapolis? I, probably Florida. Or, oh. no, I, I don't, yeah. But they used to be the most widespread franchise in America at one point. And these places have died out uh, yeah. for the most part. And there is something to be lost. You know, I think that's what your book speaks to is it's like loss and renewal, right? You know, there has to be change and there have to be these generational shifts. It is very rare for any business to last a hundred years, <laughs> uh, right? Like, like large, medium, or small business, anything you know to, to have that kind of staying power is rare. And as your book draws uh, so well, there has to be some level of generational consistency. You have to have people in the family, if it's going to be a family business, that have an interest in running it or have a willingness to endure running it, even if they're not really into it. So. I think a good place to start is just to give listeners an idea of what kind of family business we're talking about in this novel, which is the Midwestern Supper Club, which is, I think, a relic for the most part from another time. They still exist here and there, but it's certainly not a mainstream thing anymore. I'll have my character, Mariel, describe it in her own words. Every summer weekend, the horseshoe-shaped bar in its wood paneled lounge were packed with people fresh from fishing boats and softball games and cars that had driven up from the cities. It was a place where people chose to be on the most memorable nights of their lives, and it was a pleasure to be at the center of it all. On Mariel's watch, a proper supper club meal began with a free relish tray and basket of bread, with a round of brandy old fashions, and then a lavish amount of hearty cuisine with fish on Fridays, prime rib on Saturdays, and grasshoppers for dessert. All right. So first of all, what is a relish tray? So people who are listening are like, what is that? It's a free plate. It should be free. In some places it isn't, but it's expected it's free of crudite, basically, raw vegetables. But it could also contain things like pickled herring, pickled watermelon, pickled watermelon rind, cheese curds in some places. It's just usually not cooked. It's a tray that offers what for some might be exotic cuisine, 
like the varieties of olives or the pickled herring or the cheese curds. But for the most part, it's the first signal that you're not in a typical restaurant. It's the first signal that you're going to be treated more like a guest in someone's home. Like, oh, hey, step in, take a load off here. Here's some free food. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, and that's effortlessly. The, and that's the distinction between supper club and diner or traditional restaurant. Absolutely. When you think of the sort of stuff you get for free in any traditional restaurant, maybe uh, it wouldn't go much farther than the <laughs> pre-wrapped uh, twin set of crackers, you know, if you request it with your soup. Right. Or the basket, of, basket of bread, maybe. Basket of bread in some places, right. Or uh, the chips and salsa at certain Mexican restaurants. Or... But you get quite a bit more in quantity and some would say quality at a supper club from stem to stern. It, it's also not the sort of place where they're going to hustle you out the door, even if it's crowded. Uh, you can be there as long as you like. It's really a, an event. It's a third space in every sense of the word. And since they're usually rural, they're a very prominent third space for people outside of work at home to connect with their community at large and to relax and be themselves, but also enjoy what's probably the best meal in the area. Okay, and so, and forgive me for not knowing, but how uh, how many supper clubs still exist out there? Are there a lot of them still in the Upper Midwest? Oh, I'd say there's probably around two hundred. Okay, that's not yeah, a yeah, at least yeah. I haven't read any books lately that have any kind of census, and there's some that kind of mm, you'd say cross genre a little bit, yeah, but. For the most part, I'd say it's it's in the low hundreds, mostly concentrated in Wisconsin, particularly, but also Minnesota, Iowa, perhaps a few in the Dakotas and maybe northern Illinois or uh, uh, western Illinois. Uh, but for the most part, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa. Did you grow up going to these? Yeah, my hometown of Hastings, I can count, let's see, Black Stallion Separate Club, Wiederholz, Steamboat Inn. Those three were all within 20 minutes. Wow, okay. So you would go there and like have a meal and hang out and see your neighbors, essentially. Yeah. Well, when we could afford to. I mean, they were a little pricier than the typical restaurant. But, you know, you got more for your money there. You certainly got a lot in terms of quantity. So it's considered a good value in the Midwestern sense. Right. You know, you're getting a, an abnormally large plate of food. I referred to it. I refer to a prime rib platter at one point in the novel as a friendly opponent. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And, yeah, and, and that's kind of what it was like. You're going to get more food than a sane person should eat in one sitting, even a hungry sane person. But that's part of the value is that you're supposed to, you know, take it home and have the leftovers for dinner and stretch your dollar even further. So it appeals to the, <laughs> my impression of the Midwest sensibility that I grew up with in that way as well. But yeah, for us, there were special occasion things. You'd go on a birthday or... After a special event like a graduation or anniversary, yeah, and so they were special places for me. For cer certain locals, you know, they were almost every night, if not every night, places at the bar. Supper clubs usually have bar regulars, and I'm sure they also have dine-in regulars too. I mean, perhaps the more wheel, uh, well-heeled set, or you know, uh, <laughs> uh, bachelors with discretionary income, like local realtors, who knows. Yeah, but it would also be a, the sort of place that you'd take a business meeting, have a business lunch or dinner. So, yeah, they were a real hub for the community because they had, they had a full bar and, you know, usually a pretty genuous menu of 
above average to excellent American fare. Like like I said, prime rib, fish fry, steak, you know, uh, you name it. If uh, if it's described on the American menu, it's probably at, at a supper club somewhere. Even though some have regional specialties, there's a few in Wisconsin in particular that have uh, German menus. Uh, you know, you can get anything you would get at a what you consider to be an ethnic German restaurant. And there was one in Hayward, Wisconsin, for a long time called Turks Inn, which was founded by a Turkish immigrant. And there they had a full Turkish menu as well. So it was really the thumbprint of the owning family in addition to the demands of the community. And we should tell listeners, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you're from Hastings. That's Hastings, Minnesota, which is- That's out, right. Yeah. There's out, a few others out there. This is probably the least significant of the Hastings of the world. Okay. Yeah. But still. Yeah. No great battle happened here. There's no college here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I uh, was raised in Wisconsin. So we are both- Oh, we're in Wisconsin. Uh, Milwaukee, suburban Milwaukee. Oh, so, yeah. I know So it. we're both from the land of supper clubs even though I don't have much memory. I left when I was 11, so, and went to- Yeah, and even then, I don't think there are many, if any, in the city. Right. There's a few that kind of, you know, share borders with the supper club genre, but for the most part, you've got to go into the country. Okay, and so, you know, you had these experiences in your youth, and this is the, you know, the land and the milieu that you're familiar with and write about often, but I'm wondering, for the purposes of writing this novel, if you did a lot of field research, were you out visiting supper mm. clubs to see what they, you know, to get the vibe again or, and to meet some people who work there and have uh, maybe a experience managing a family business? Oh, I wish. I wrote most of this book during the pandemic. I did begin researching it before while I was touring for Lager Queen on my hardback tour, which took me through the northern Midwest. I'd eat at supper clubs whenever I could, knowing that I was going to write about them. But unfortunately, about 95% of the manuscript was written at a time when I couldn't step into a supper club. And I simply had to go to the one in my imagination every day. Well, that's nice, though. It's a kind of a nice, yeah, fun place. You know, I, I got to say, like, from a community perspective, there's something to be envied in this sort of setup. Like, you know, as a person who lives in the city, we both live in Southern California and you know, it's crowded by comparison. There's maybe not as much cohesion like uh, at a community level. And again, I, I'm I'm saying all this with very little frame of reference for what it's actually like in the upper Midwest these days. But I do have to imagine that in a town with a supper club where there are regulars and in a town where it's smaller, that there would be, I don't know, maybe just a a tighter sense of community and this idea of having a third place like this that is familiar to the locals and a place where you kind of go get to see people when you want to, <laughs> you can stay home if you don't, but I don't know. There, there, it's easy to idealize this for me. Like, Oh yeah. How nice would that be to just get to go to some place where your friends are? I guess it could also be a bummer if you, if you're running into people you don't like. <laughs> Certainly. I could feel, I could feel, I could but, but, feel. But then you know where to avoid if you don't want to run into them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I could feel your love. You know, I can always feel the love that you have for these people in this region in the work that you do. And just to set it up for listeners, you know, we have a supper club called the Lakeside Supper Club in a, a town, a lake town in Minnesota called Bear Jaw. And I did Google. This is a fictional town, right? That's right. Okay. Is it modeled on anything? No, no specific town. 
Okay. I like the name, Bear Jaw. I felt yeah. like well, I could I could buy it. I was ready for it to be real. It hadn't been used yet. I mean, the closest would be Moose Jaw in Saskatchewan, I suppose. But I thought, okay, this sounds realistic enough. I mean, I wanted I wanted one that was two nouns, too. I really had that stuck in my head. I wanted a town name that was two nouns. Yeah, like a two-part town name. I got to say, too, it's also an, uh, a town name or a, a, a pairing of two words that sound particularly good coming out of the mouth of an upper midwestern person i can imagine you know mm-hmm. it sounds i could hear like with the minnesota accent you know bear jaw yeah exactly <laughs> oh geez so. oh that happened up in bear jaw you know yeah <laughs> hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature i have a book for you it's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So we have a, a young woman named Mariel who has inherited the Lakeside Supper Club. And you're doing a lot of moving in time in this novel, which I admire because it's not an easy thing to do. And I'd never had a problem as a reader following, you know, from chapter to chapter, you're sort of jumping through generations and tracing the history and the legacy of this place uh, as it pertains to Mariel and her lineage. You know, her mother, Florence, forgive me if I screw this up, but it's her mother, Florence, her grandmother, Betty. That's right. Okay. And then she inherits it from her grandfather and you get to sort of see how this place came to be. And then we live as readers with the tension of wondering what's going to become of it in kind of modern times, which for the purposes of this book is what, the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. And so it's the life story of Mariel. She, I think is the heart of the book. She loves this place and loves these people and keeps it going. And then she marries a, a, another, she marries a guy who's also from a restaurant family, but it's a different kind of restaurant family. So why don't I have you describe Ned Prager and the family that he comes from and the business that they run. Okay. Ned Prager comes from a family that two generations previous owned a restaurant 
not so dissimilar from the Supper Club, a little family-run roadside diner in southeastern Minnesota on what was soon to become Highway 61. So its presence on this interstate highway granted it a lot of success, and the son of the founder, Ned's father, Edward, decided to franchise it. And by the time we meet Ned, there are over 100 Jorby's restaurants, as they're called. I never explicate the name. If I had to, maybe it was in the book at one point, it was the name of the founder's dog. <laughs> um, it's, not that, it's not that uncommon, by the way. For right, people right. To name I, I Googled that too. It's the name of a town like on the Isle of Man or something. Uh, so it's not a widely used name. But I thought, okay, that's a good name. And he's just not cut out for it. You know, I thought a little bit about his family through the realm of the characters in the TV show Succession. And he's not really any of them. He's got a lot more heart and a lot less business sense than any of the, <laughs> of the Roy siblings, which uh, for someone who's not <laughs> acquainted with Succession is to say that Ned's just not cut out for success in corporate America. He would be better off being the son of the founder, in which case it would have remained a roadside diner and wouldn't have franchised. And I think he would have been a good deal happier at that. And um, Ned's family undergoes a lot of changes some personal tragedies. And Ned finds himself at a real crossroads over whether and how to continue in this family business that has always been passed down to the firstborn son, of which you know he is. And so he's kind of suffering under the weight of this expectation from his family that he not only continue the family tradition, but make it more successful as each generation has so far. So that's a, that's a lot to take on. And so in telling his story, I also got to tell the story of certain franchises, you know, Red Lobster, Perkins, et cetera. That yeah, is, is, Jor is Jorby's modeled on anything? I was wondering. Yeah, it's kind of loosely based on a number of these kind of casual dining diner type franchises, like like some of the ones we mentioned earlier, you know, Country Kitchen, uh, Embers, Perkins, uh, Happy Chef, but, Bob Evans. Yeah, Bob, Bob Evans, Evans. That's the one. Uh, yeah, that's the I one think that's, that's the red one. Absolutely, of which there was one. Oh, yeah. in the town that I grew up in, in in Indiana. In fact, the day that I left Indiana, pretty much for good, to go off to college, it's the last place I stopped. <laughs> Yeah, sense. we stopped there for like coffee and I'm sure I was having a yeah. cigarette, which is gross, but you know, those were the days. Yeah. Bob Evans was the first place that I had a meal that I witnessed came directly out from under a heat lamp that it was there when I walked in the door <laughs> and I got it. Uh, <laughs> and I, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about some of the diminishing returns that come with the necessities of capitalism as it expresses itself through the restaurant industry, how, you know, prices have gone up, quality's gone down, morale's gone down for the most part among staff. There's a greater distance between upper management and the customers. And contrast that with a supper club and its intimacy and its immediacy and its immediate contact with the owners. So, you know, I didn't want to make it a real simple David and Goliath sort of story. I think there's a lot to like about places like Chorby's. I think to some extent, they're kind of a necessity in America, a place where a family can go out to eat that won't break the bank. 
because quite frankly, most supper clubs are more expensive than a Perkins or a Bob Evans. Sometimes you just need to take the family out. You know, you've, for any number of reasons, you've had an exhausting day visiting a relative at the hospital. You know, there's been a storm, you name it, any number of circumstances. You're just too tired to cook. You know, there's a softball game after school, then a soccer game. You know, you got half an hour before these kids got to get to bed. There's Bob Evans. Well, right? and there's also there's also also the issue of like I'm thinking of taking a family out, and I think when you when you have yeah. franchises that you're familiar with, you kind of know what to expect from the food, no matter where you are. If you're on a road trip, for example, and there's a if there's a Denny's off the side of the road, you have a sense of it. And if it's a local place that you've never heard of before. You know, you've got to navigate whether or not anybody's going to like what's on the menu. Right, right. You have kids to please, and Lord knows that's not easy. Yeah, I mean, my son eats about five things right now. <laughs> How old is he? He's three. Oh, man, that's cute. Yeah. I like that age because it's like half baby, half person. It's a good age. That's exactly it. Yeah. He is half baby, half person. <laughs> Aren't we yeah. all, though? <laughs> Some more than others. So Elon Musk is still mostly baby. Right, exactly. So... I want to talk about, you know, some of the things that you were just mentioning with respect to the, the pressures that uh, come to bear due to capitalism, you know, the way that you yeah, have to cut costs, you might have to cut quality, you might have to cut staff or cut the uh, wages that you're paying your staff to try to make ends meet and to stay profitable and competitive and all these different things. And one of the things I loved about this book is that it takes place in a part of the country that many, especially coastal people, might consider to be "quote unquote" provincial, and yet, you know, and you mentioned the the series Succession, uh, which is of course about this billionaire dynastic family. I have not seen it, but I think I have a sense of what the basic, uh, you know, what the basic outline is. And you know, what I love is that this book shows us that the same sort of stuff happens in. Uh, a Minnesota restaurant family where you have siblings competing with each other for the family, you know, for the family uh, heirloom or the family business or whatever it is. And these tough and kind of brutal decisions have to be made. And there's something too that I found very relatable in Ned. As you mentioned, he's not really cut out to be cutthroat. He's, he's a people person. And there's something comical about the scenes that you draw where he is essentially showing up at work at the office to assume his birthright as the firstborn son and the future leader of the Jorby's empire. And he's 24 and he's getting his ass kissed by like 55 year old men. You know what I'm saying? And it's just, I think about this a lot of times when it comes to these families that have a lot of money and a business and you have this young often spoiled child <laughs> who sort of never has to pay his dues or her dues. And if they do, maybe they're around the business, but it's really not the same. They don't have to work their way up the way somebody else would. It's just sort of like, oh, maybe they're learning the business and the different levels of it so that they can operate it one day and so that they can have some semblance of having paying, you know, having paid their dues, but it's not the same. And that's a very interesting part of this book <laughs> and and seeing how he just you know he's not interested in it really he likes to go out to lunch with people yeah that's what he's good so at. the one part of the job he enjoys <laughs> is expense lunches 
But, but, but with other employees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. He's taking out people who are, you know, working at different levels in the company, all the way down to the mm-hmm. bottom of the company, you know, the bottom rungs of the ladder. And he gets along with these people and he enjoys them and mm-hmm. they like him, you know, but to run a business might require you to be like not beloved <laughs> and to to make difficult decisions. There are, I think... Yeah, th- that this is something that's always challenged me. Like you sort of have to be able to turn off your heart, <laughs> you know, in a lot of uh, business scenarios, you know, where you're letting people go or cutting costs and doing all the stuff of of capitalism. But Ned's not that guy. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Yeah, he can't imagine firing any one of these people. And so I won't spoil it for readers, but... I think the the long story short is that he's a better fit for supper club culture. And like, as you were saying, he would have been better off back in the day when Jorby's was just a roadside diner and you actually got to know people and it was more mm-hmm. like more of a personal exchange between proprietor and customer. And it felt like, a, you know, felt like family. Right. Right. He's a nice guy. nice guys just don't fit well in cutthroat corporate culture and i wanted yeah i wanted to talk about that in a larger sense wanted to explore that theme of how we're losing something uh through these franchises and yeah ned would be better off like manning uh, a roadside diner in person and so would we so would most people right i know i would I, there's a lot of me and Ned, that's for sure. But so are the customers. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's numerous positive traits to the franchises that we've discussed. But by and large, the purpose that Ned derives from more personal labor is, yeah, something he can't get from Jorby's anymore. And I think that's what attracts him to the separate club ultimately, is this sense that you know what, I'm making relationships here, not just transactions. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're not, because if you're at a roadside diner, like that's on Highway 61, mm-hmm. one of these franchises, you're not really seeing the same people usually. You're just seeing people who are passing through. And so you never really get to form those bonds. You don't really get to know the lives of the customers that you're serving. You don't get to mm-hmm. really have that sense of integration into and service to your community and that's the stuff that i think makes people happy ultimately right yeah you're right you're right that's it and it's like you get a sense of consequence from it yeah and just like i don't know it's nice to have what's the uh i feel feel like i'm singing the the cheers theme song Mm. (laughs) sometimes sometimes you want to go where everybody everybody knows your name yeah and sometimes you don't i mean sometimes you don't want to go where everybody knows your name but i feel like that yeah in an ideal way uh, you know, when it's working well is a very good thing. And, you know, what we're alluding to here and something that I think is what makes your work successful on the page and popular with readers is that you're describing the lives of quote unquote ordinary people. I don't know if you eye roll or get sick of people describing your work this way because it's set in the Midwest and, you know, you're not describing the lights of uh, the lives of coastal elites, you know, like for instance, the show Succession or whatever. But 
I think the reason why it works so well is that it's shot through with so much grief and darkness. <laughs> That's there. And even though these are unpretentious, kind of salt of the earth people, that doesn't mean that they have any reprieve from the suffering that comes along with being a human being. And I think that from a plot perspective, I mean, this novel, without wanting to spoil it, takes some turns that are heartbreaking and all too real. One thing I would talk about, you know, in an overarching kind of way are the fertility struggles that Ned and Mary will go through as they're trying to have a child. This is the second book in a row I've read where that was at, you know, somewhere near the heart of the plot. Oh, uh, what was the previous one? Uh, this novel called Blue Hour by Tiffany Clark Harrison. It's a oh, debut. I haven't read it yet. I should read it. Yeah, it's a debut on Soft Skull, but I went through, I mean, my wife and I suffered miscarriages. Um, oh, I, so did we. Yeah, I know that you guys had gone through fertility stuff. So that stuff is sort of infused through the book. And then there's also just loss. There's family strife and conflict. And, you know, it covers generations. So there's old age, illness, mm -hmm. death, you know, all that stuff. And that's the emotional core of the book. It wouldn't work, right? If it were just like, I guess maybe there's some version of this novel that could just take place at a supper club and there could be some sort of like, you know, some sort of minor drama involving mm -hmm. the people of the town. But I kind of tried to do that in my first draft. At the time I started writing this book, it was early 2019. It felt like a dark era, but, you know, we had no idea. It's the middle of the Trump administration. And I just wanted to laugh. I just wanted to take my mind off of it and write something that would lift my spirits a little bit and tell a story about people, you know, maybe not behaving in their best way, but nonetheless, uh, making their way through life and dealing with it in ways that I would find comical. So the origin of the story began with the uh, standoff between Florence and Muriel. That was the first chapter I wrote. The story was originally going to be structured over a summer the summer in which Florence is waiting at the church for her daughter to come pick her up. So the whole conceit of the story was comical, the whole spine. But as I got into it, I discovered, you know what? The last thing I want to read is a stock comic elderly Midwestern female character. That's not what the world needs right now. I know too many of these women, I can't disrespect them like this. If I'm going to portray a woman of a certain age in the Midwest, I want to, I want to get to know her and I want the reader to get to know her. And so I decided to tell her backstory. And as I did that, I discovered, okay, there's a lot more here. I've got to tell other people's stories too. I've got to pass this baton through generations and not just try to keep it in the summer. Because also as a writer, you know, you find yourself writing a flashback scene and you go, okay, I know I'm going to get the note. Why can't this just be a chapter? Yeah, I can just feel it. So, okay, <laughs> just suck it up, you know, press copy, you know, put a new document, make a new chapter and just say, you know what? My last two books were, well, the first one is a generation. The one before was uh, two generations. Now this is four. I, I keep trying to circumscribe my books within a shorter time period. And each time I fail even more. Do you know why? I think because I want to explicate the motivations behind my characters. I want my readers to know them. 
I want to know them. I want them to tell their side of the story and their voice. I want them to tell other people's side of the story and their voice. And I want to track how values evolve over over generations. And the legacy that gets passed between generations is subjective and very much in the hands of the recipient. And as a new parent, I became a father in December 19, about seven months after I started writing this book. And that recalibrated everything too. It made me think a lot about the themes of legacy I was exploring in this book and how consequential they could be for the characters if I allowed them that. And so, yeah, I plummeted even further, went back even further, went forward even further. I knew how I was going to end the book. I was intending that to be kind of a, a short coda at the end of the book, the scenes with Julia, but that ended up also expanding quite a bit. So, and, and I should, I should interrupt and say Julia being, Oh, I'm sorry. Julia being Mariel's daughter, Mariel Ned's daughter. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Who's, you know, stands to inherit the supper club naturally. And one of the things I became preoccupied with early in fatherhood was the idea that I can't impose anything on this child. I, well, first of all, I had a lot of nerve bringing him into the world at all, uh, <laughs> given the state of the world we're in. I mean, so grateful he's here. I mean, we tried for years to have him, and now he's here. And I feel like, you know what? We're leaving you a real mess, kid. If you want to reject it all, I don't blame you. In fact, I approve. And I thought about that a lot writing this book, that you know, we're nostalgic for things like supper clubs. I mean, I certainly am. But who's to say the next generation will be? A lot of what we're nostalgic for now will probably be considered immoral, if not destructive, in 50 years. And so, yeah, I, I just want to prepare, as a father, prepare my child for the world to come, not the world that is. I don't want to give him any notions that would cause him to preserve that world. I, I mean, he can keep whatever, whatever it he wants, whatever has meaning to him. I hope more than just sentimental meaning. Uh, but... I can't think of many things more sentimentally important to me in the Midwest than supper clubs. And so for me to write about them being passed from generation to generation and being forced to evolve or die, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking for me, but it was also me reckoning with my own present and my own value system and it's inevitable obsolescence. Yeah. Everything, I guess, eventually <laughs> is going to be obsolete. Right? <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. And may, maybe sooner than we think. Yeah. Yeah. Something I want to ask you about, which often gets noted in reviews of your work, is how well you, as a man, write female characters. And in this book, you've drawn several very well. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how you get good at that. Like, what what guides you when you're writing female characters? Is it any different than when you're writing male characters? My mom guides me. I right to keep her alive she died 18 years ago tuesday and died about a year before i published my first short story but it was so long before i really apprehended that grief and grabbed it by the horns i had a writing teacher named lou matthews who once told me who has been a guest on this show yeah yeah he was a wonderful guest uh he's got a great great book out called shaky town uh excellent writer very underrated and he told me in one of his writing classes once you start writing about things that matter to you, your work's going to get a lot better. And to me, that meant my mom's death and the grief I had around that. And also apprehending her legacy. She had always wanted to write a novel herself and died before she could even begin outlining when she was only 54. 
And if anything lit a fire under me to write a book, it was that. Now, I did write one novel in my late 20s, early 30s that'll never see the light of day, but it did teach me the skills I needed to learn to have the discipline to write a book, which eventually did write a publishable book. (laughs) And my mom guided me through that process. I sat down and put her in the characters and had this conversation with her about what would you want to see in a book? What kind of book would you want to read? What characters are important to you? And by putting her in my characters, I feel like I'm still communicating with her. She's very present to me. And, and, you know, these characters take on a life of their own that aren't her per se. You know, uh, like a lot of writers, once I get going, I'm just sort of t- taking dictation from these people. In some cases, they want me to do things to them I don't want to do. But all in all, it's a dialogue with my mom and hearing her voice in my head and having her angel on my shoulder, I'd say. But there's no book that has more of her in it than this one. That's interesting. It makes me think. What I'm thinking of as as I listen to you is, I think it was Stephen King's On Writing. I could be totally wrong about this. I've read so many craft books over the years. But somewhere along the line, I read that you can write successfully by having just one single reader in mind. Mm. And often you'll have writers who are maybe writing for their spouse or their significant other, or they're writing to uh, a parent and maybe a parent who's no longer with us. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like that makes some sense to me as kind of a North star. And has this been the case in each of your books? Absolutely. And will probably be the case going forward. I would imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine doing anything differently. It, it's just the, it's the central fire. It's the home fire in the, in the house of my novel writing process. Yeah. That's, that's wild, but it makes a lot of sense. And I can imagine it being like, uh, true, you know, there's, there's such a purity to the love that one, I mean, clearly you have for your mom, but that, you know, familial bonds are so strong and to especially have a, a parent who had an unrealized aspiration to write fiction and to get to realize that for her. Mm -hmm. Like uh, it makes a lot of sense when you read one of your novels that that's how you're operating. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I want to talk about some of the other Midwestern, like kind of small brushstroke, like beautiful detail work that you do in this book, which is so recognizable to me as a fellow Midwesterner. First of all, the name Stenerud, which is Mariel's maiden name, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm a Packers fan. Mm. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Jan Stenerud. Yeah, that's was right. The ki- was the kicker on the Packers in my youth. Mm-hmm. Is that what you were drawing from? Yeah. I had to, I, I just, it was. Yeah, I pulled it from him. Okay. Because it was just such an odd, I mean, for a professional football player to be named Jan Stenerud. Just kind of perfect. 
Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, especially for the Green Bay Packers, for yeah. an upper Midwestern team. I mean, you know, I guess he's like Scandinavian in some sense, but there's that. And then the other thing that I absolutely love, like I was laughing out loud when I read, was the repressed, like the heavily emotionally repressed marriage proposal at the baseball game. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I love that scene. But, yeah, no, it rang so true. I mean, I listen, I'm uh, my wife is from Minnesota. Mm. Uh, she, she grew up in... Uh, Minnetonka, mm-hmm. right outside of Minnesota, you know, Minnesota. Yeah, I know. And yeah. so, of course. So, you know, uh, I know her family, I mean, it's just like, what's the word for it? Uh, central casting when it comes to like repression, not a hugging family. Mm-hmm. You know? right, <laughs> like, right. Like lots of love, lots of love and kindness, but just like not like emotionally demonstrative, shall we say. Right. Um, so I don't know. There's something very recognizable and funny about the ways that culturally there can be people who are filled with so much love and filled with so much emotion, but who express so little of it mm-hmm. and who are very uncomfortable in situations that require, say, physical expression of affection or verbal expression of affection. You get to a marriage proposal and Mariel's just like, oh my God, like I'm not doing this here in front of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of get that actually. Yeah. You know, to do something like that in public is is a lot to process, but uh, I find that sort of stuff delightful, and it can only really be done well. Well, I shouldn't say this. I don't want to make hard fast rules, but I think it's especially done well by somebody who's from the region and who knows these people intimately, and who might have a bit of this himself. Mm. Yeah, I've been guilty. <laughs> yeah, maybe we all are, you know, <laughs> in some way. Um, so I also, as an extension of what we were talking about with respect to like the home fire, as you described it, your mother being at the core of your creative process. I want to talk about the success that your books have had because it's unusual. You know, your books have sold for literary fiction, hundreds of thousands of copies, as I understand it. At least that was in the press materials. I don't know if your publisher's overselling you, but mm. that sounds like a good, a good amount of copies. There's a enthusiastic readership, uh, kitchens of the great Midwest. Your debut was a bestseller. Uh, and then, Lager Queens of Minnesota was a national bestseller. I would anticipate this one doing pretty well. And looking at like the through line between these works, they're all Midwestern novels, if we could put it that way. They all have to do with food Mm -hmm. and they all have to do with females Mm -hmm. in a way that's central. And that's a good formula. Like, like, not to be gross about it, but I'm curious. I think a lot of us people listening, and a lot of us who like you know write and uh, work in and around publishing, are wondering like, what is the for? How do you find readers? How do you make a living at this? And you seem to have either by accident or intentionally found a formula that works. And again, that sounds reductive, but let's think about this. Everybody loves food. It's like food and sex, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody loves those two things pretty much mm-hmm. one way or another. But food is something that everybody has in common. We all love, most people love to eat across cultures. You know, you don't have to be a Mexican person to love Mexican food, right? Like mm-hmm. this is the way that we often connect with people who are unlike ourselves in a manner that is uh, pure, mm-hmm. you know, and, and benign. Uh, so food is, is there, I know, you know, knowing you, uh, a bit that you're into food, obviously, if you're writing about it this well, you would have to be. And then 
to write about uh, the lives of Midwesterners. I guess that's a nice niche to be in because there are so many novels, especially in the literary fiction space, that take place on the coasts, like in Brooklyn or, you know what I'm saying? Like that sort of stuff, if you really were to crunch the numbers, I'm sure it would be more common than books set in Lake Country in upper Minnesota or whatever. Definitely. And then female, you know, having books that have maybe a female bent or have female protagonists, that's going to resonate more with the majority of readers because most readers of literary fiction are female. My question for you is, was this intentional? <laughs> did you, did you, I mean, is this just an accident of like, well, this is the stuff that I'm interested in and it just so happens to resonate with, like it just so happens to hit this sweet spot or was it something that you actually looked at and thought, you know what, I know a way to combine these things and to reach these readers? You know, was it was there any kind of calculation to it? I didn't know anything about readers. <laughs> I had only written one novel I couldn't sell. I, I couldn't even get an agent to return an email about. I didn't have any notion of what was successful in the marketplace beyond, I suppose, what I could have ascertained from the books I was reading which weren't similar to my book at all. I mean, between writing my first unpublishable manuscript and writing Kitchens, there was a 10-year period where I did decide consciously that I want to write literary fiction or at least upmarket fiction. You know, there's different distinctions here. There's been a wonderful recent substack about it by John Warner uh, breaking down some of these uh, categories in detail. And so I guess I put myself in one of those two categories, but I didn't know that at the time. I didn't, I just internalized a lot of what I saw and enjoyed in fiction. The female centered narratives I've opted for because of my mom, I didn't consciously think about that as a commercial decision. I like I said, I wouldn't have known when I sat down to write kitchens of the great Midwest. I, I hadn't discerned that. I, I just thought, you know what? I'm writing to my mom. This is a love letter to where I'm from. I want to put her in this book. I think the main character has got to be a woman. Just so just so the, the grief I'm trying to resolve in my life is filtered through her experience, you know? So I can kind of create this character that's kind of an amalgam of us. Yeah, I, but in terms of... Um, Writing for commercial appeal, I think if, if I tried to do that, I would have failed. I I think whatever I would have discerned would have been wrong, or I would have gone about it in the wrong way, maybe, if I had discerned any of this in advance. I I don't trust myself well enough to think that anytime I sit down to write a book, oh, this is going to be a hit. In fact, every time I've sat down to write a book, I'm sure, like, I'm certain no one's going to like it. I'm certain, like, oh, you know, there's going to be, like, eight people that like this book. And I literally think that every time I sit down to write. And usually I'm wrong about those eight people. Usually at least one of them like gets back to me and says, I didn't care for this one. Um, <laughs> like my grandma hates my debut novel. And she was one of the people I thought would enjoy it, you know, because of some of the themes and the characters. And no, she said, I can't recommend this book to any of my friends. <laughs> yeah. It was a far crueler than any Goodreads review. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. Harsh. So, yes. You know what? I, I, I wish I was savvy enough to have thought that you know to think like hey i know how to write a hit book i think some people have uh but 
no, I was just trying to write about, I was just trying to write myself through grief and, and, and balance that with topics that I was really passionate about. And that's where the food and drink come in. You, when I sit down to write a book, I ask myself three questions. What do I want to see more of in the world? What do I want to learn about? And what am I afraid of? And each of those books has answered, has different answers to those questions. And I, I need that balance. I need to have my books partially funny. I need to have my books take on topics that aren't simply loss or grief or, or um, failure of connection with a parent or failure of reconciliation with a relative. I mean, all those themes are present in all my books because they're things I'm still grappling with. But I have to balance it out with, I got to write about food. I love food. I love writing about food. I love, I, I wrote Lager Queen because I wanted to learn about beer. I didn't know the first thing about beer. I didn't know the difference between a lager and an ale. I mean, I enjoyed it. I knew that. But I knew I had to create three characters, each of whom didn't know anything about beer at the time I introduced them, and they would teach me about beer. With this book, I've worked in a supper club. I've eaten them, eaten them my entire life, so I have some knowledge there. This wasn't as much of a fact-finding mission in that regard. I think what I wanted to learn was what can I do to be a better parent now that I am one? What, what can I learn that I can still apply that's not too late? And is it ever too late to be a better parent? I think that's the kind of stuff I was asking. And if you look at Florence's arc, it answers that question for me. You know, Florence being Mar Mariel's mom. Yeah, Florence being Mariel's mom. Is it ever too late to be a better parent? Because some people would disagree with me on that, I think. Some people find certain encroachments too unforgivable. I, I want to forgive those encroachments. I, I wanted to put into the world opportunities for that possibility. So that answers that question. And what was I afraid most of? Well, that's kind of a third rail. I'll let the reader discover that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we don't spoil. So we don't spoil anything in the plot. Absolutely. But I get, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's going to be very clear to anybody who reads the novel what J. Ryan is terrified of. <laughs> right. Does that answer the uh, question, though? I, I think I kind of. No, well, I think so. I, I was a bit I circuitous and I wasn't trying to be evasive, uh, but I'd never been asked that question before and it was a good one. And I had to explicate here in real time. Okay, yeah, what exactly, you know, was I thinking before sitting down to write this book? And if I put myself back in the head of Jay Ryan in 2013 and 2014, he was asking asking himself the same three questions I've asked ever since. Well, that's that's really great. I mean, to, to have it broken down like that. And I think like, you know, the advice that you got from Lou Matthews is advice that I've repeated even recently to authors that I know, which is that when you lean into your fear, when you lean into your grief and the things that really deeply matter to you, you are going to most likely produce work that resonates more than other work might, you know, work mm -hmm. that has, has less of that. And yet, I think many of us understand this intellectually, and it's not necessarily easy to do. You know, sometimes leaning into those things can be very emotionally uncomfortable, excruciating to write about. And that's, I think, you know, that's the hard work of being a writer, right? You have to sort of toughen up. I don't know if there's really any other answer to that. If you're, if you're say a writer who's like, wow, I, you know, 
this is the thing that means the most to me. This is the thing that pains me the most that I cannot shake and that I wrestle with. And yet the thought of spending three years of my life or five years or 10 years of my life writing about it doesn't sound pleasant. Mm -hmm. But I think this is the essential labor, or at least one of the essential labors that writers, in particular writers of literary fiction, uh, are doing for the reader. Like this is the hard kind of difficult work that we do so that people can have maybe a transcendent reading experience or a reading experience that's emotional and can lead to deeper insight and to a feeling of having really gotten into the skin of other people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I know I, I go there emotionally when I write, like I laugh when I write a funny scene. I cry when I write a sad scene. Do you as well? A little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think like the laughing, the laughing, I definitely recognize. And yeah, I don't know if I actually physically cry, but I definitely feel sad. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, you have to really, I mean, cause if you're not laughing, then how's the reader going to feel? You know, mm. you're the best, I think you're the best benchmark for your own work, right? You have to pay attention to your own response in real time to get a sense of how it's going to go for the average reader. It's a bad sign if you're bored, right? It's a bad sign if you're going to the work every day with a sense of, you know, it's kind of like drudgery. You yeah. Know, you don't feel, you don't feel excited about it. That should be telling you something. Right, no? right, right. Or when I get to a section during the revision process that I found myself skimming, they're like, oh, I better just cut this. <laughs> if I'm skimming it, yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And, or, or as we mentioned, like the dreaded flashbacks. You know, mm. if, you're writing, if you're writing a 40-page flashback, you might be starting or, you know, you might not be in the right place in time yeah. for the story that you're telling. Yeah, you know, you yeah. Might... that's what I discovered. So something that I wanted to talk to you about with respect to this part of the process, kind of self-editing or finding your way to the story, the essential story, kind of paring away that which is not necessary, has to do with the acknowledgments in your book. Mm. And I'm going to paraphrase, but I'm always fascinated to read acknowledgments. Mm, me too. They're, they're, they're often touching. I don't know. Maybe this is a writerly thing just because I know what it takes to write a book. It never gets done. Even though the work itself is solitary, it always kind of takes a village one way or another. And there was something that you wrote to writing colleagues, maybe some of your first readers, people who are also working novelists who are giving you feedback. And you said something to the effect of, you always gave me exactly what I needed mm -hmm. as I was working on this book. Can you like illuminate maybe what you were talking about when you said that? Were there particular struggles? I mean, we mentioned the flashback as something that needed to change in the book, but were there other particular difficulties that you had um, that maybe the feedback process and the, you know, in the revision stage really helped you suss out and, and uh, fix? Yeah, uh, there were. Usually I overwrite my first draft. I like to liken it to a trip to the grocery store where I buy more ingredients than I'll need for the meal. And so my early readers often help me suss out which voices are essential. They'll also help me figure out kinks in the timeline. Being that I have this predilection to multi-generational family epics. I need to find out where I'm being redundant. That's usually the first place I cut. And I need to find out where I need more information. What do I need to fill in? I 
am the sort of reader that doesn't mind gaps in a narrative. I love utilizing my imagination to complete a story. Not every reader does, <laughs> but I do. So as a writer, I like it. I like to hop around in time and allow the reader to discern for themselves, you know, you know, follow the breadcrumb trail and say, oh, okay, I understand how these chapters fit together. Are I can discern from this action what's happened in the intervening time. I don't need him to spell it out. But sometimes my beta readers, and later on my editor will do this too, will suggest a scene needs to be added. And we'll say, you need to write this specific scene. So what about the the novel that you wrote early in your career that did not find an agent or a home Yeah, that will forever reside in your drawer? I'm curious to know if it is different than the novels that succeeded it in any fundamental way that you could point to. Oh, completely. Yeah, it's... It's a much more unsophisticated and immature writer. I mean, I would hope so. <laughs> but also, I hadn't yet crossed that transom to what Lou Matthews and you were talking about in terms of leaning into your fear. It was basically a long-form version of the kinds of short stories I was writing at the time. And you maybe are familiar with some of the work I'd done live or some of the short stories I'd published that were, you know, farcical or satirical in nature. So kind of a long-form satire about a poetry contest in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, once again, written without any idea towards commercial potential, but it amused the heck out of me at the time. And that, to me, was my sole standard for judging a work's quality or readability or, <laughs> dare I say, <laughs> exposure. I felt like that was enough. Like, you know what? My short stories have amused dozens of people at a time. Uh, <laughs> perhaps a novel can amuse hundreds, including in places I don't know. And yeah, it was basically a long-form version of the kind of writing I was doing at the time, which was, I suppose, it, it, it's privileging it too much uh, to say like McSweeney's-esque, but at its best, that was the kind of comedy I was going for, this kind of social satire. For the most part, it was quite a bit more, uh, a little too on the nose for McSweeney's. Like my, <laughs> I hit lower hanging fruit and hit it from a weirder angle. So I felt like when I didn't get a response from agents on that manuscript, never even a request for a full, you know, if I got a request at all, it was, or I'm sorry, if I got a response at all, it was a no. It just kind of taught me that, okay, the world isn't interested in my work, or at least such as it was. And I think it actually created the conditions for me to become more successful later. I am so grateful now that manuscript has gone and continues to be ignored. I would have hated for that to be my first published piece in the world. I think it would have set a really bad example for me in terms of lowering the bar of my potential as a writer and as a human being, thinking that what I was doing was good enough, like what I was getting away with. You know, that, that's just it. If, I, if that book had been published somehow, I would have felt I was getting away with something. I think I would have had a much greater sense of imposter syndrome too, not that I don't now, but I would have felt like, oh, that was easy, you know? It's really that easy, yeah. Uh, and I'm glad it wasn't because then I did the work. You know, I, I read exhaustively in my genre or in the genre I, I aim to write, write for. I took writing classes I formed groups with people in those writing classes workshopping each other's work. 
And when I finally sat down to write another novel again, I had a completely different point of view on how the work should be treated. And luckily, a completely different point of view on my expectations. Because believe me, when I was writing that first book, I was getting short stories published. I was reading at McSweeney's events. I felt like, oh, this is a slippery slope. I'm just going to be a published author in a year and la-di-da, hooray for me. And I'm so glad I wasn't. I'm so glad that I had to work for it. And my ultimate published debut was something I wouldn't have imagined writing then. It wouldn't have crossed my mind. I don't think I would have been capable of it on a number of levels. Well, first of all, I wasn't anywhere near apprehending the sort of honesty I had in regards to my grief process that would have enabled me to break through it and think about communicating it to myself, let alone others. So, yeah, I was just a tremendously unsophisticated person, you know, just a very, very immature young man who did not deserve any kind of success for that writing. So I want to ask you about the shift to where you, that you just talked about, about shifting to where you were actually aware of the grief that you were experiencing and had maybe language for it. What changed? Like, did you have therapy? Did you read stuff? I did have therapy. Yeah, it helped quite a bit. I read stuff. I communicated with other friends who'd lost parents. You know, I'd come to under I'd come to see it in others and come to see it as um um as I put it in one of my books, A Forest with No Trails, I began to understand that this wasn't something to be overcome, that this wasn't a process that I can master. You know, because all my life I've I've done that as a student throughout my life, certainly. You know, like you show me the rules, I'll master them. You know, any right. kind of process, I'll discern it and I'll do the best I possibly can. I I was just the ultimate joiner in high school and college. You know, I was the edit, you know, Friday had a Friday column in the newspaper. I was the um uh, what's it called? Like the program manager and general manager of uh, my campus radio station. Where did you, you go know, to I, school? I went to Northwestern. Okay. Uh, University in Evanston, Illinois. And so like everywhere I went, I just figured out rules and mastered them, right? Grief, yeah, grief threw me for a uh, for a total loop. It showed me like, no, no, there's no way through this. There's no book you can read. There's no single therapy session. There's no life experience. you can. I tried to run away from one point. I moved to Argentina for a summer. You know, I, I did all this crazy stuff, none of which put me any farther ahead through it until I sat down to write Kitchens of the Great Midwest. That, to me was the most profound step I took towards resolving and understanding my grief. And that's what I set out to do with it. I set out to sit down with my mom and say, you know what, I'm going to think about you every day. I'm going to write about you. I'm going to put you in this book. And I'm going to write about characters that are experiencing and have experienced some of the same things I have as a means of processing these events. So yeah, that book was profoundly personal for me as, you know, in spite of its varied point of view characters. It was, you know, they're all me. They're all um, steps I went through. And at the end, I thought, okay, I'm glad I got that out there. I'm glad I'm done. It took (laughs) other readers for me to say, oh, other people should read this or other people could. You know, I didn't think anything more would happen with that book than with my first one. Uh, All I knew was that Kitchens was a process I needed to experience as a human being and as a writer. And when the people in my life started saying, oh, yeah, this is this is pretty good. You should send it to agents. I thought, sure. <laughs> right. Then they're done that, you know. Right. right. Yeah. 
So I was really shocked that it resonated with people. But as you pointed out earlier, I think because it was resonant with me, it had the chance to, you know, I, I leaned into that fear. I, I cried a lot writing that book. That book was tremendously difficult for me to write. I worked on it every day. I really inhabited that, that world in a complete way. And it came out pretty whole. It wasn't changed much. Unlike my subsequent books, that book came out pretty much as it was published. There was a few chapters that didn't make the final cut, but that was it. Um, yeah. And, Looking back on it now, I go, I couldn't have done it any other way. And I don't think I could have written a better book a year earlier. I wrote that, I wrote the best book I possibly could have at the latest possible point I could have. Like I'd just gotten to the point of writerly competency, emotional maturity, and presence of mind to write a book that could have been like Kitchens of the Great Midwest. Like I'd finally gotten to the point in my life at age 39. You know, I'm not saying it'll take that long for everybody. You know, I, I don't have an MFA either. I know I've talked about that on the show either. And that might have fueled my artistic process differently. Might have sped it up, might have slowed it down. It's hard to say. All I know is I assembled the sort of tools that people seem to assemble in an MFA from, from my life, from the UCLA extension classes, from my writing groups, and from reading a lot. So I, I just know that I when I sat down to write that debut novel, it it came at the <laughs> came at the only and first possible point I could have written such a book after just years of work. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, like what you're talking about is something that I've talked about a lot on this show and have argued, kind of like pounded the table saying like, you know, people roll their eyes when people talk about writing being therapeutic or how they had like some therapeutic experience writing a grief memoir or a griefy novel or whatever it is. But my argument is that it's one of the best ways therapeutically to process something as complicated and difficult as grief. Like I can't think, and I mean, I know we're wired for this as writers, so of course we're going to write about it or, but making art about grief or about difficult human experience is therapeutic. How could it not be? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. If you're doing it right, it should be, or it could be. Yeah, I think writing with the objective of being therapeutic might cloud the waters a little. But if you go out about it in an honest way, as I try to, I try to really unpack what I'm really afraid of and what I'm really scared of staring down. It can be. It has that potential. If, if I mean, even if only to like take a little bit of the fear out because you've stood mm-hmm. there and looked at it. Yeah, forced yourself to sit with the grief and sit with the sadness and sit with the fear as opposed to repressing it or trying to, you know, push it away, bury it. Yeah. And there's so many little moments I experienced throughout my life where I felt I could communicate that grief through relating these moments where for me, reliving them, you know, just things that get stuck like post-it notes on the back of your brain. Like there's a scene in the new book, uh, Saturday night, where um, Ned's walking through his office after experiencing a loss in the family, and he sees all these family pictures everywhere, and they just trigger him. And he's like, I can't tell these people not to post them or take them down. I'm their boss. I could, but I can't. I just have to look at the carpet every day now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I remember that. I experienced something similar at one point. And yeah, just you, you just put that away. And I think, you know what, I now, wait, wait a second here, 18 years later, I'm writing about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. that's true. I mean, it comes to grief, like you lose a, 
you lose your mother and then people have pictures of mom up or, you know, oh, my yeah. mom, or the phone rings. Oh, it's my mom, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. We feel that stuff at the heart level, you know? Like it's yeah. impossible not to. And yeah. and yet, and yet, what are you going to do? You know, you, you tell people they can't put photos of their moms up and they're, you know? Yeah, in their it, office cubicle, yeah. It's right. like, the phrase that I love is like, it's like learning to carry fire. Like this mm. difficult stuff of life where you have no choice but to just live with it. Yeah. Like you said, you're, there's not a rule book. You can't process it or follow the path through the forest and get your way out of it. Mm -hmm. You have to carry it. You have to, yeah. live, you have to learn how to live with it. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it became especially resonant lately since becoming a father and knowing how good of a grandmother my mom would have been. Yeah. I really feel that, that loss. Like it was like feeling it again all over. Sure. Yeah. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I, these books are lovely tributes to her. I can't think of a lovelier tribute, you know. And just to like drill down a little bit more, we talked about writing female characters and doing it well, and you talked about your mom being the impetus for that. But I'm curious, you know, because you are, there are lots of different characters in this book. You know, it's kind of a, you know, this this uh, town of Bearjaw, you know, has this cast of characters. There's lots of different people. So it's the family, but it's also the people who work in the kitchen and the people who come into the bar and have their Brandy Alexanders or whatever every, every night. I'm wondering what kind of process creatively you go through, if it's something that you could like delineate to build round, believable characters that don't feel stock. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you write character bios? Like, how do you imaginatively work through these characters to make them feel palpably real? When I start writing a character, I think of a scene, and usually it's not their introductory scene. It's often a scene later in the book or ends up later in the book where their personality will be drawn out. For example, the first scene I ever wrote for Logger Queen, my second book, was a scene where the primary character, Edith, is visiting a, a friend's apartment. They're both senior citizens um, or people of a certain age. They're both in their 80s. And uh, this friend of hers in her apartment building has a bunch of brochures from nursing homes on their coffee table and tells Edith, look where my kids want to send me. They want to send me to live in one of these places. And Edith looks at these brochures and finds the one that's the ch cheapest made, like the poorest paper stock, the fewest colors, and goes, huh, this looks like a place that could use my help. I think I'm going to go here and volunteer. And in writing that scene, I thought, okay, I, I've learned an awful lot about this person. I know who she is now. So I, I usually have an idea of who my main cast is going to be, and I just try to create a situation. And like I said, I don't put the pressure on myself for it to be their introductory situation, but a situation that'll draw them out in an unexpected way because usually it's the unexpected reactions that reveal character more readily to a reader than typical ones so you try to find ones that will surprise a reader when i think about creating fully fleshed characters i begin there and then with each subsequent draft i add more detail i just try to get everything down with my first draft like a lot of writers i just write sloppy and big and don't think too much about beautiful sentences or sensory detail, unless it comes naturally. Uh, I'll go back and I'll say, all right, now that I know more about this person, how would they react in this situation? 
what would they do differently now that I know them better, having completed a first draft and followed their their narrative through. And quite often that'll change. Quite often I'll find them saying different things or behaving in a different way now that I know them better. It's just, so it's just a matter of just letting them loose and letting them talk in my head. But as always, like trying to consistently put them in situations that will reveal their character, uh, ways they'll be challenged, ways they'll be surprised. You know, another scene that comes to mind is uh, also with Edith when she's walking through the parking lot of her uh, apartment building and some teenagers playing basketball and the basketball rolls over to her. And rather than just roll it back or pass it back, she shoots it and sinks it. And she's like 70, you know, <laughs> right. and, and it comes out like, oh, I didn't know she was a high school basketball player. And so then that gets retroactively added. I retcon my work all the time, all the time, you know, and nothing is ever hard and fast in a J. Ryan Straddle draft. I'll tell you that I if, if I come up with something that I like that I need to add, I'll go back and change dozens, if not hundreds of pages of text to make it work. So that's another thing. I'm very unsentimental about my own writing. There, there are scenes that people in my novel writing group will say, oh, this is the best scene you've ever written. It might get cut later because it just doesn't fit with the notion of the character that has evolved from there. You know, I find myself in that situation quite a bit where I, as I get to know a character better, yeah, I, I'll just retroactively fit the narrative to fit their evolving personality. So it's, yeah, I think it's more like a forage. It's not like a factory where you know, there's a mold and a character is stamped and they come out. It's, I mean, these characters are overheated and pressure treated and held in the fire for a long time before I know what shape they have. And it's, it sounds like an intuitive process. An intuitive. Yeah, I, re I really trust my intuition with that because like I said before, so much of it comes from my relationship with my mom and thinking of her and putting her in these characters. And so she kind of, with certain characters like Mariel in particular, she really guided certain events in that character's life. And so I'm contouring my way through them connecting them and thinking of oh what would her point of view be in this situation how would she encounter this you know like thinking that it's a good idea to go to go to work immediately after having a miscarriage or not telling anyone at work about a very serious health condition things like that you know okay so those are those are expressions of a value system i recognize from my mom's life or I could understand, uh, or, or, or I could say like, well, you know, she had a thing about not wanting to burden people. You know, I don't want to be a burden to people, you know. And so once I understand that detail, I think about, oh, different ways it could express itself and different events that will challenge that. Because as difficult as it is to ask for help sometimes, there are times you really need it. And that <laughs> that's something as a native Midwesterner, you know, there are some forms of help that are very readily proffered, like snow shoveling. And there are others that um, aren't, you know, there are a lot, you know, just like people anywhere in the world, uh, I think we have a lot to learn and how to effectively communicate what we emotionally require. And knowing the Midwestern personalities I've experienced in my life, my mom first and foremost, gives me kind of not a set of rules, but a framework through which to operate within. And from there, those characters start to start to flesh themselves out pretty quickly. All right. So three novels in and having some success, I'm wondering 
if much has changed about your approach day to day to doing the work? Like you have to be pretty industrious to write three books in however many years it's been. It's been yeah, less than 10, 10. but Yeah, like nine. Yeah. Nine, yeah. So you've written on a pretty good clock and I'm just wondering how you go about doing it most days. Is there a schedule? Are you really regimented? Yeah, I just heard Clint Smith talk about this on Fresh Air yesterday. Um, since becoming a father, his schedule is right when they're sleeping, you know? <laughs> yeah, or, or right when I can. I've become a lot less sentimental about my writing um, preferences. But yeah, I just write whenever I can. I have become more of a night writer since becoming a dad. Uh, my son was certainly willing to wake up earlier than I wanted to. So I found my way around it. I like with anything in life, it's if it's what you really want to do, you'll find a way to do it. You'll have people in your life that understand your boundaries and your requirements. And I'll do my best to uh, work around theirs. But at the same time, yeah, I think my writing's become a lot more piecemeal in terms of habit. I, I don't write every day. I'd like to, but yeah, when I think about it, it's still the same. I feel like I'm sitting to, sitting down to write a debut novel every time I sit down to write. I, I've learned nothing in terms of uh, like an applicable consistency. <laughs> like uh, I, I think my my work ethic is the same, but there's not a formula I can just sit down and follow to write a book because of the emotional origin points for my books they're unfortunately something i have to find my way into and that takes as long as it has to yeah are you working on anything new i always yeah. ask people at the end if they have if you, do you have another book cooking uh, yeah it's cooking i haven't written anything for it yet but i've sat down and done some preliminary outlines which i usually don't do uh, just trying to figure out who the characters are, what sort of characters I need around them. And, you know, I thought of an ending, which I always do early on. Because then if you know your ending, you know your theme and you can work retroactively. And I can do what I like to call my cheat code, which is to start really far away from the ending. And so you've got a novel-sized <laughs> chunk of time to fill. In this case, I'm writing another multi-generational family epic, but it won't exclusively take place in the Midwest, at least as I currently am writing it. There's going to be some chapters that take place in California just because they have to. And that's a new thing for me. I had never really written about my life as a Midwesterner in California and what that's been like and what it was like moving here and and trying to disabuse some of the notions of California that the Midwest have. You know, it works both ways. Right. When, when I come back there, I often get asked the same kinds of questions about Californians that Californians have about Midwesterners. All the time I meet coastal uh, interviewers or readers who don't believe that a person such as Edith Magnuson could exist. And quite just as often I encounter people in the Midwest who are aghast at me living in California. What a strange and unwieldy place it must be. But <laughs> yeah, right. one, one thing I'm, and I'm not saying it's not, but what I failed to understand and what I understand and value so deeply now is how I've met people like you out here and people like my friends, Anne, George and Jake, you know, uh, native Midwesterners and Southerners who like me 
are displaced from their place of origin. Many people in their places of origin puzzled at their move and contain a similar history and similar perspective. And I think I have a pretty interesting cohort of fellow Midwestern natives out here. There's so that, many, so many, yeah. I mean, most of the people who made it in Hollywood are from the Midwest. You know, like the, if you were to, if you were to suss out like the pantheon of great Hollywood stars and their places of origin, some of them grew up in New York and LA fine, but like sure. so, so many of them are from like downstate Illinois and Missouri. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like it's all over the place, but I think it's a lot of people from the middle of the country who were dreaming of being on, you know, on the screen or whatever and made their way out here. That I think is the more common story. Yeah. So you're in good company. We're in good company out here. We just got to find each other. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's the tricky part. I remember when I first moved out here, someone, t someone told me seven years, it takes seven years to build a family, build a community out here. Yeah. And yeah, maybe it took a little less, a little more, but they were about right. You know, yeah. for me to feel like, oh, this place is home. Like for me to say home and think California. How long have you been here? Oh, it's going to be 25 years on July 4th. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm a little bit less. I came out in 2001, 2001, I moved out here. Wow. So, a space yes. odyssey indeed. 22 years, 23 years almost. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. And it changes you, but I still feel I hold within me a lot of the person I was. And I, I, I'm glad about that. I I would feel disappointed if I didn't. And yeah, I, I'm so driven to write about the Midwest. I feel like that's the region that made me who I am. And uh, I'm still trying to unpack it. You know, it, it made me who I am partially against my will. Being a, I spent my childhood and teenage years there and didn't have as much agency as I would have liked. And, uh, you know, we're still trying to figure out the complexities of that region. And because its emotional expressions especially on a personal level, are, are so subtle. It, For Minnesota in particular, I think it takes uh, a local to discern it properly. And I've really tried to keep alive my relationships with my friends and family in Minnesota as best I can to help the endurance of that mindset. I, I, I really want to do honor to these people and write the books about Minnesotans and set in Minnesota that I wanted to read when I was growing up. I, I don't know about you, but I felt there was a real paucity of Midwestern setting and character in contemporary fiction when I was an emerging reader. And while there's less so now, I still feel compelled to add to the conversation. I'm not trying to write any kind of comprehensive overview of the Midwest life or, <laughs> or personality types. I'm just trying to add my own observations uh, to the stew, but I, I feel I just have to. I, I think about that teenage boy sitting there just over the moon anytime the word Minnesota came up in a novel, let alone a specific place within it. Right. Yeah. And thinking, you know, there's just been so much work said in other places. Like, I, I still have a lot of stories to tell about this region that made me who I am and, and that I love and was home once and maybe again someday. All right. Well, on that note, it's great to catch up with you. Congratulations on the new book, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. 
and I wish you all the best with it, and I wish you all the best with whatever comes next. Thanks so much, Brad. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was J. Ryan Strottle, author of the novel Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, available now from Pamela Dorman Books, an imprint of Viking. I should add that polka music is the traditional music played at supper clubs. I have this on confirmation from J. Ryan himself. So I'm playing a little polka music here at the close to try to capture the supper club vibe. If you want to find out more about J. Ryan Straddle, you can do so at his official website, jryanstraddle.com. He is also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. His handle on Twitter is at jryanstraddle. One more time, the new novel is called Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, available now. It's out there. It's waiting for you. It's a wonderful book. Go get your copy right away. If you had a nice experience listening to this episode and you would like to support The Other People Show, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod for as little as $1 a month, patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you would like to get another people t-shirt you can do so at the show's official website otherppl.com you can also sign up for my free once a week email newsletter over at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com you can watch the other people show on the other people youtube channel just head over to youtube search for the show by name other ppl and when you find the other people youtube channel hit the subscribe button it's free Follow the show on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. If you have feedback for me, you can email the show. The address is letters at OtherPPL.com. And if you would like to read my novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. Coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with Matthew Zapruder, who is making a triumphant return to The Other People Show, celebrating the publication of his excellent new memoir entitled Story of a Poem. I'm very excited to share that one with you soon, so stay tuned.